Last weekend, uh, my wife Linda and I had the uh, privilege of being invited to Canton, Ohio, where two friends were inducted in the Professional Football Hall of Fame. And uh, while we were there, I heard a story that reminded me that often in life we're not as uh, smart as we think we are. The story is told of uh, two college athletes, football players, one's named Bruiser, the other Tiny. And they were taking an important exam, and if they failed the exam, they wouldn't be eligible to play academically. They wouldn't be eligible, and they'd be put on probation and wouldn't be able to play in the big game that was coming up that particular weekend. The exam was a fill-in-the-blank, and the last question read, Old MacDonald had a blank. Now, Bruiser was stumped, and he had no idea what the answer, but he knew he needed to get this one right. There was a lot riding on it, so when the professor wasn't looking, he tapped Tiny on the shoulder and said, I don't know the answer to the last question. Tiny turned around, making sure no one was looking. He said, man, I can't believe it. I can't believe you don't know the answer to that. Everybody knows old McDonald had a farm. And Bruiser went, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And he started to grab his pencil. He started to write it down, and he was stumped again, and he taps Tiny on the shoulder and said, Tiny, how do you spell farm? And Tiny went, man, everybody knows farm is spelled E-I-E-I-O. You know, sometimes we're just not as smart as we think we are. And that story reminds me that we need to be always open and always teachable. And uh, the question I have for today is this. When did those who repented of sin and responded with faith to the finished work of Christ first become known as Christians? And also, when they were given that label, what was meant by the term Christian? Today in our ongoing study of the Acts of the Apostles, if you've got your Bibles, we come to the passage that introduces us and gives us the answer to the first Christians. When did this take place? And as you're turning to Acts chapter 11, an overview and some background is in order. The passage records the final step of the Gospels beginning to be proclaimed to the Gentiles, specifically the formation of a Gentile church in a city called Antioch in Syria. Apparently, so many people had responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ in Antioch that the local populace coined a new name for Christian followers or Christ followers in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. And it says, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it goes on to say, and the disciples were first called Christians in that particular city. Now, the nickname had to come from those who lived there who were Gentiles because there's no way that any believer would have associated themselves. They would have been reticent to call themselves Christians using the name of Christ in that title because of the holiness and righteousness of God. And so the Jews that were there also wouldn't have called them Christians because they would have never attached the term Messiah or follower of Messiah to Gentiles. And so it was a term that was given to those who were disciples or followers of Christ. They had several terms as we're going through the book of Acts. They were called the disciples, the saints, the believers, the brethren. And so this particular term was given to them by those who lived in the city of Antioch in Syria at this particular time because there was something so different about the way that they lived. They had to come up with a term for them. The people of Antioch composed a label for these for for these people that they couldn't figure out what they were all about. You know, what's interesting is I've mentioned several times we live in a time when the term Christian has become one of the most vaguest epitaphs in the English language. During the British colonial era, for example, it became synonymous with Englishmen in India. It didn't matter how a person lived, how godly or perverted a man was, they were given the term Christian 
to designate or separate them from others in the world. If you think about it, in the last century, we've had two, quote, Christian nations that have fought in world wars. You know, and some people think that everyone who's not a Jew or a Muslim is a Christian. A good example is that's found in Dr. Harry Ironside once handed a gospel booklet to a man on a train. The man turned to him and said, why did you give this to me? He said, well, I thought you might be interested in it. May I ask you, sir, are you a Christian? And he replied indignantly, take a good look at me. Do I look like a Jew or a Chinaman? He says, you look like an American. Then he responded, that is your answer. Even today, many people are willing to say, I am a Christian, but would hesitate to say that they are believers or disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. It's easy to say, I am a Christian, because it's a very vague term. Several years ago, when I was first confronted with the term Christian, I thought that I was a Christian. I believed in God. I went to church on occasions. Uh, didn't can't say I read the Bible, but there were other things that I did that I thought that made me a Christian only to discover that my definition of Christian was far removed from the definition that God gives us in his word. And so many people, as we have conversation today with others around us, when we use that title or that term, it's a very vague term, and we've got to be very careful of the answer. Uh, I had a gal who called me uh, not long ago, and she wanted me to officiate at their wedding. And as we began the conversation, I said, is the man that, that you're engaged to, is he a Christian? And she said, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And when he came and we met and we began to talk, it was very apparent very quickly that he had a different idea of what it meant to be a Christian than what God's idea is. And so as our time began to develop throughout that, and one of the questions that I asked him was the same question that I was asked once in my life and had no answer for it, and that was this. When did you become a Christian? And he looked at me with the same deer in headlights look that I had when I looked at the guy who asked me, and we had a great opportunity to to then begin to discuss what the Bible says a Christian is. In this particular chapter that we're going to look at, we're going to find out what it was that they had in mind when they gave the label or the tag Christian to these people who had, they had no understanding of what they were all about. Uh, before we read this, we need a little background on the city of Antioch. It was situated, it was on, situated on the Orontes River. It was 300 miles south of, north of Jerusalem, 20 miles east of the Mediterranean. Uh, the importance of that is, is that uh, Rome, Alexandria, and then Antioch were the three largest cities in the known world at that time. It was a very powerful city. It was an eclectic city, a melting pot. Five different cultures were found there. There was Greeks, Romans, Semitic, and Arab, and Persians that were all there. The Jews made up one-seventh of the population. It was a real melting pot of what was going on in that particular time in the, in the world in that day. Throughout the world, one of the things that was reenacted there was the famous worship of Daphne, whose temple stood five miles outside town in a laurel grove. Apollo's famous pursuit of Daphne there was reenacted night and day by the men of the city and by the priestesses who were, in actuality, they were prostitutes or ritual prostitutes. And so immorality, a sexual immorality of all kind abounded in that city. And they used it, they used it under the guise of religious, a religious act or worship or whatever. And they would do that just as was done in the city of Corinth. When you read Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, you see a, a good um, overview of what was going on in that city as well as far as sexual immorality was concerned. The bottom line of Antioch in this particular time and place was that it would be likened to uh, maybe the city of Las Vegas in our time. Or maybe New Orleans, or New Orleans, as some of my friends call it. Um, you know, at Mardi Gras, or Rio de Janeiro at Mardi Gras. 
when you look and you see you know, what's going on at the, in that particular city during those times. You begin to have a good feel or flavor for what's taking place in the city of Antioch. And amazingly, it was in that city with all of its immorality, all of its adultery, all of its uh, rebellion against God and, and any moral standards whatsoever, it was ironically in that city that disciples were first called Christians because of the impact that they were making in that particular community. They were turning that city upside down by what they were doing and what they were saying. And it's important for us to know why they were first called Christians in the city of Antioch in Syria and were given four answers in Acts chapter 11. I want to start with the first one that we read in the first 18 verses and we'll take a look at them one at a time. In Acts chapter 11, we read these words. It says, now the apostles, and there's that term, the brethren, who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. When Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in an orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance I saw a vision, a certain object coming down like a great sheet, lowered by four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze upon it and I was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. It says, And I also heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared to me, before me in the house which which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. It says, And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. And these six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. It says, and he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all of your household. It says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. It says, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God, therefore, gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. In this particular section of this passage of this chapter, uh, I want you to notice something about these people who were later to be called Christians. We're first identified to them as the brethren or disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. But there was something about them that stood out in the city of Antioch, and that was that they were an embracing what I'll call an embracing people. And what I mean by that is that they were willing to set aside their prejudices and embrace all who have repented and received the Lord Jesus Christ as family members. They were willing to set aside all their prejudices, all their preconceptions of other people, all the things that would hinder them in having a relationship with them. They were willing to set those all aside and welcome them in as a fellow member of the family of God. 
See, and this wasn't as easy as it sounds because if you'll notice going back to verse 1, it says that the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. They heard what had happened in the household of Cornelius. They heard that one of their own, Peter, had actually gone to a Gentile's house after staying in the home of Simon the Tanner, a man who was you know, guilty, according to Judaism, of touching unclean or dead animals to skin them. Peter stayed in his house, and then on top of all of that, left his house to go to the house of Cornelius, another Gentile, to be able to tell him the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had heard about that, and they wanted to know what was going on with this guy. Peter, what did you flip your wagon? I mean, what are you, you you're selling out? I mean, what, what's going on here? I mean, you're throwing us under the bus? What's, what, what are you doing? And they were concerned about it. In fact, the words, they took issue with him, means that they strongly contended with him. Some translations say they contended with him. They took issue with him. Notice that in verse 2. It comes from the same word translated to make a difference. What they were doing, these legalists were making a difference between Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and Gentile believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were separating or making a difference between the two groups of people. And as Peter was attacked by these people, they took issue with him. And I want you to notice what he does. He explains to them. And I like what God has to say as far as how he did it says that he explained to them in verse 4 in an orderly sequence. He didn't get angry with their accusations. He didn't rebuke them. It didn't turn into a heated argument. He knew that he had the truth on his side. And as he explained the story, that they would have to deal with the reality or take grips with what actually took place. So it wasn't between him and them. It, was no, you know, it wasn't going to be a debate. He wasn't going to argue with them. He was simply going to proclaim the truth to them. And I want you to understand from a very simplistic standpoint, when we deal with other people as it comes to their prejudices and maybe their racism or maybe their genderism or maybe other isms that separate them from other people, that we need to, in a very logical, sequential order, to confront that type of bigotry head on. And that's exactly what Peter did. We can learn a lot from how Peter addressed their racial prejudices And in a matter-of-fact tone of voice, with nothing to fear, he told the truth. He wasn't going to argue with them. He wasn't going to debate with them. He merely told them exactly what took place. And he said, I was in the city of Joppa. Here's what happened. I was praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision and a certain object coming down like a great sheet lowered from the sky. And he proceeds to tell them what we've already studied and learned from the previous chapter, what had actually taken place. You'll notice that when God wants to make a point very, very clear... So that there's no misunderstandings whatsoever. He will repeat that several times. And notice in Peter's life, what God did was three separate times he repeated the message that he wanted to get through Peter's head. Ladies, that's a good tip for all of you as you deal with men in your life. You know, once isn't enough, twice isn't going to work. Just tell us three times and we'll probably hear you the third time. You know, and, and that's just, that's not scriptural. That's just, I threw that in. So... That was free. So um, take it for me. You can throw that out if you want. But you know what? Sometimes it may take more than that. So, uh, but the bottom line is that three different times God was making a point to him. And he showed him unclean animals. And he said, take this and eat of it. And Peter said, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and he took it again and said, no, that's okay. What I have made unclean is no longer unclean. Stop and think about it. 
why did they have the dietary restrictions that they had in the beginning? If you go back to the book of Leviticus, God was very careful when he addressed the nation of Israel. These are the things you're not allowed to eat. Who called them unclean to begin with? God. So if God now calls them clean now, they are no longer unclean because he's the one that had called them unclean to begin with. But what man wants to do is he wants to continue to run with something even after God has changed that. He's saying, hey, I'm changing everything. The purpose of the law was a tutor to lead you to faith in Jesus Christ. We don't need that anymore. It's been fulfilled. It's completed. We've got the word of God so that the laws of God will lead people to see what God says about us is true. The Ten Commandments help man, no matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, help man to understand that we're not perfect, that we've sinned. We've all fallen short of God's standard. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt always keep the Lord your God first in your life. Thou shalt not, you know, hey, you know what? We're all guilty of violating God's commandments. The purpose of those commandments is to show us what he already knows about us, that in our heart we're guilty before God, that we're sinners, and that we need to repent from sin, turn, and respond to what God says is his plan to redeem us back to himself. I loved you so much, I sent my son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life that we would turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, believing he died, believing he rose from the dead. The evidence is overwhelming. The only thing that holds us back is that our own pride and stubbornness that says, God, I don't need you. God says, that's the only way. You need me more than you'll ever know. Trust in me. Trust in my plan. Believe in my son, and you shall be saved from the judgment and the wrath of God. That's the gospel in its simplicity. See, and as he explained to him what God's plan was, and he noticed what he says to them, and as I was saying to them or sharing with them, what I just shared with you, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that even though we're sinners, God loves us. Even though we're in rebellion against God, he sent Jesus to seek us out and to hunt us down. And even if we're in rebellion against God, he still loves us to the point where he draws us to himself, that if we will repent from our sin and turn to God and turn to Christ and trust in him, that we shall be saved and forgiven. He says to them that, you know, those who heard those same words that we heard, believe them also in their heart. And the same Holy Spirit who was given to us on Pentecost, very visible sign from God, so that they would understand what God was doing in their heart, the same thing happened to them. After, notice in verse 17, he gave them the Spirit of God after they believed in their heart. They believed what the witness was. They believed in the testimony. It was obvious that God saved these Gentiles as he saved the Jews. By the same Holy Spirit received by the Jewish believers on Pentecost were now received by the Gentile believers in this particular day. He also had six witnesses with him. Notice this. He had, these, he had fellow believers with him. He said, hey, you don't believe me. This isn't about me. Ask them. They were there. The evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was based on the mouth and the testimony of eyewitnesses, people who saw him, who ate with him, who spent time with him. This isn't a bunch of people running around trying to convince the world that Jesus Christ, this great teacher in Nazareth, who had died and executed on a cross and was put into a grave, that somehow he rose from the dead and were trying to perpetuate some hoax or some myth on the rest of the world as if somehow there's some truth to that. Hey, the truth and the reality to it is, is that there were witnesses. There were people who ran away when he was crucified, who when they saw him resurrected later, they gave their lives for what they testified. You can kill me. You can rip out my tongue. You can tear out my eyes. You can stone me to death. You can throw me before lions. You can do whatever you want. It can't change the fact that I saw him raised from the dead. I spoke with him. I ate with him. He spent 40 days with us talking about God's plan and the coming of his kingdom. He's alive. 
And the message of Christianity is that he is alive today. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. The Bible says that as he went into heaven he shall return. Where his feet left the Mount of Olives they shall return one day. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That's the truth of the word of God. Eyewitness testimony. Peter said, you don't believe me. Ask these other six guys. You think we're all crazy? He said, and if that doesn't end the argument, remember when Jesus said, John the Baptist baptized with water. But there's a day coming where you who put your faith and trust in me will be baptized by the Holy Spirit of God. That was his argument. Very simple, very plain, didn't raise his voice, didn't get upset. The same words that you heard and you received are the same words that they heard and they received. The same Holy Spirit that you received is the same Holy Spirit that they received. Hey, the witnesses that we had at Pentecost, we have witnesses to what happened, and it's the same thing. And if that's not enough, don't forget the words of our Lord himself, who said, one day you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you notice, to their credit, look at verse 18. When they heard this, I like to put it this way, they quieted down, I say they just shut up. I mean, they had nothing left to say. They quieted down. You've got to give them credit for that. They didn't continue to try to argue. They didn't continue to try to maintain their position. When they were confronted with truth, just like Job in the Old Testament, when he was confronted with the presence and the glory of God, he was confronted with the sin in his own heart, even though he thought he was a great guy. When he saw him for the first time, he said, I've heard of you, now I have seen you with my face, with my eyes, and I will repent. And he fell on his face, and he retracted everything that he was saying because he was in the presence of a holy God. When we see God face to face, all of our imperfections become very clear. Last night when I was doing the chapel with the angels, one of the things that I mentioned to the guys, I said, you know what? Every level along the way, I see people who think they're pretty special. You see a little league kid who thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread, man, and his parents think the same thing until he comes in contact with a high school all-star. Then you see a high school player who thinks, man, he's the greatest athlete that ever lived until he comes into contact with somebody who plays at the college level and is so much better than him. And even a college player is in awe of somebody who's in AAA in minor league baseball. And in AAA, they're in awe when they come up. And I see him, man. They see him walk into the locker room for the first time, being called up by a big league club. And they're just like, oh, oh, oh. You know, they're great. They're doing things. They're going, going like, oh, man, there's, a, there's Cal Ripken sitting over there. Oh, man. You know, and there's, you know, they're trying to be really cool about it, you know. But it's like I, the most beautiful thing I ever saw, just the transparency and the humility of all of it. We have a friend whose name is Stephen Israel. He played uh, cornerback for the University of Pittsburgh. He was in our Rams Bible study the first couple of years. Just kidding. Oh, I'm, I'll get that for you. No, no, let me. Can I, can I answer it? Can I, I'd love, can I, please. That'd be so nice. So, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just getting up. Oh, okay, cool. Um, but, but, um, where was I? Oh, Okay, yeah, he was, he was, you know, he's 22 years old, right? And he's sitting and we're having this Bible study in our house. And, uh, and he's looking around this room. And he, and, he, and, he, and he finally, finally says, he looks at Jackie Slater and he goes, Jackie Slater. Oh, man, Jackie Slater. He goes, I was in third grade, man, when I started watching you play football. You know, it's like, I can't believe I walk in the same locker room. and I'm getting dressed in the same place you get dressed. I'm going out on the same field, man. It's like, and Jackie's looking. I'm like, don't be telling anybody that story, man. You know, I'm feeling old as it is. I don't need to hear you were in third grade when I started playing, you know. But it was just like, he, it was just the transparency of this is, this is so cool. 
And I saw that this past weekend, guys that are standing there and, and, and they're being inducted in the Professional Football Hall of Fame and they're looking around at people that they've looked at as role models all of their life and they're saying, man, I mean, I, I, I'm included with you? This is amazing. It was an incredible weekend and a great weekend to hear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ exalted by men who weren't afraid to take a stand. That's a wonderful thing. We'll talk about that in a second. But this whole idea of, you know, they just shut up. There's a time when we're confronted with God's truth that wisdom tells us to just shut up. Stop arguing. You have no grounds to stand on. Your legs have just been chopped out from underneath you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourself before God and receive the gift of salvation that's offered to you by Jesus Christ. That's wonderful truth. And we look at this and we realize they just shut up. And he said to them, well, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. It's important and it is is critical that we understand all who become children of God, black and white and yellow and brown, rich and poor, young and old, male and female, do so by repentance, responding with faith to the finished work of Christ on their behalf. We're all equally saved in God's sight by His grace through faith. Peter would later write that husbands, and this was revolutionary at this time, that husbands should grant their wives honor as fellow heirs of the grace of life. In a time where women were second, third, fourth class citizens, he's saying, grant your wife honor. She's a fellow heir. And salvation and eternal life. To the Galatian church, he wrote something very similar. The Apostle Paul, when he was confronting the issue of of racism and and prejudices of all sorts, in Galatians chapter 3, notice he says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith and faith alone. But now that faith has come, we no longer are under a tutor. For you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. They were first first called Christians at Antioch because they were an embracing people. It was revolutionary for these people to embrace others who they had for so long stereotyped and had racial prejudices against. They brought them in. Centuries of racism, centuries of prejudices were destroyed in one moment of time in the heart of a person who had come to faith in Christ and now was living out their faith. And it blew the people away in Antioch. They couldn't understand it. What in the world's going on? What in the world is happening here? They're willing to lay aside personal prejudices and accept all believers as equal in Christ Jesus. The question is, are you willing to do the same? Or are there still subtle prejudices in your own heart that need to be dealt with before God? The warning of the scriptures is that that's very dangerous and embarrassing. I heard a story to illustrate it. This is a man who reeked of alcohol flopped on a subway seat next to a priest. Says the man's tie was stained with chili, his face was plastered with red lipstick, and a half a bottle of cheap wine was sticking out of his jacket pocket. Says he opened his newspaper and started to read, and after a few minutes, the wino turned to the priest and said, Say, Father, do you, do you know what causes arthritis? 
The priest, disgusted by the man's appearance and behavior, snapped. It's caused by loose living, being with cheap, wicked women, too much alcohol, and a contempt for yourself and for your fellow man. Wow, he said. I'll be darned. And he continued to read his paper. The priest, after thinking about what he had said, felt guilty about being so judgmental and calloused and unthinking. So he nudged the man and he apologized and said, I'm sorry and I regret coming on so strong to you. Please forgive me, I'm sorry and I didn't mean it. How long have you been suffering with arthritis? And the man looked at him and said, I don't have arthritis. I was just reading here in the paper that the Pope does. (laughs) Oops. And a much more serious story, Mahatma Gandhi shares in his autobiography that in his student days in England, he was so deeply touched by reading the Gospels and seriously considered becoming a convert to Christianity, which seemed to him to offer a real solution to the caste system that divided the people of India. One Sunday, he attended church services and decided to ask the minister for enlightenment on salvation and other doctrines that he would find in the scriptures. But when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go elsewhere to worship with his own people. He left and never came back, having been quoted as saying, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. Some draw a circle that shuts men out, race and position are what they flout. But Christ in love seeks them all to win. He draws a circle that takes them all in. May we, as God's people, never forget that the gospel is an open invitation to whosoever would believe in him. They would not perish, but have everlasting life. Christians are to be an embracing people, willing to receive one another and not dispute over cultural differences or minor matters of personal conviction. Romans 14 and 15 and Acts 11 and 18 and Romans 14 1 were clearly admonished to embrace those whom God has also embraced. Is that true of your life? Is that true of your heart? If it's not, you need to confess that sin before God. He's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we need not ever be a stumbling block to those whom God is drawing to himself through the word of God. A second reason that believers were called first called Christians at Antioch was that there was an explosive proclamation that took place in their life as they shared what was going on around them. Notice in verses, if you're in Acts 11, verse 19 through 21, it says, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen. Now, if you remember, the persecution that arose with connection with Stephen was initiated by Saul himself, Saul of Tarsus. As Stephen was stoned to death and the, and the believers were scattered abroad, it says that this was what was taking place, that Stephen made their way, uh, those who had been persecuted made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrena, who came to Antioch and began preaching and speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. When these believers were scattered abroad during Saul's persecution of the church, some of them ended up in Antioch, the capital city of Syria, which is what we're discussing, and there were two groups of people. One group continued to tell the Jews of the good news of salvation found in Jesus Christ, but they wouldn't speak to the Gentiles. There's another group of people who said, hey, you know what, the gospel's open to everybody, and so they were sharing it with the Gentiles. And so there was this combination that was taking place, but both groups were 
explosively proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and no other name by which God has given to man, by which man can be saved from the judgment and the wrath of God. Notice they were preaching the Lord Jesus. You know, they didn't realize how radical what they were doing was. It came so natural to them to just tell as many people as would listen as to what happened in their heart. That for years that they were in rebellion against God and, and that, they were, that, that God was welcoming them and, and asking them to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And when they did this, their lives were changed. If any man's in Christ, he became a new creature. Old things passed away. All things became new. Their lives were totally revolutionized. And as a result, they couldn't help but tell people. I mean, it's amazing. It's like, when I, you know, I, you talk to people, you can tell them about anything. Tell them about your new job. Tell them about the place you get your hairs done, your nails done. Tell them about the latest sale. Tell them about, you know, the sports team you like, the hobby that you like. Man, you can't wait to tell people, oh, man, I got this new driver. You should see it. Oh, man, I can hit 300 yards down the middle of the fairway. It is sweet. You know, you can't wait to tell people. Man, you get all excited about it. Well, how much more excited could they be in going around than we should be in going around telling people that, you know what, my life is not the same. I don't totally understand it. All I know is this, that, man, I was angry and I was empty and I was lonely and I was miserable and I was frustrated and I was fearful and I didn't know what would happen to me after I died and it troubled me often because I know somebody who has cancer. I know somebody who just died in my family and I want to know what is this world all about? What is this life all about? Give me meaning and purpose and I've had none. And then I hear the good news that God loves me and that he sent Jesus Christ to die for my sins. And he died on the cross, and if I would believe that, and then believe that he rose from the dead, that God says that he would receive me as a member of his family, he would take me off the streets of sin and welcome me into his house, his mansion, and call me a child of God to those who believe in his name. And when I trusted in Christ, my life has changed. I have meaning, I have purpose, I have joy. I have assurance. I know that when I die now, that the day that I die, I'll be absent from the body and present with the Lord because God's spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. I have comfort in my relationship with God. Yeah, I doubt sometimes and yeah, you know, but the more I study the word of God and the more I get to know him, the more those doubts just flee away from me and the more assurance that I have and the more confidence that I have. And man, you know, I can't help but tell you, have you never had doubts Have you never had fears? Have you never been troubled in this lifetime and wonder what it's all about? Have you ever got so frustrated with material things you thought if you got that job or you made more money or you bought the next thing or the other thing or if you got married or if you had children, oh, then your life would be fulfilled. Oh, then your life would have meaning, but you're still empty and you're still lonely and you're still scared. God has placed in the heart of every one of his creatures A longing to have fellowship with his creator. Don't ever allow a person who's not interested in listening try to convince you that they don't have that hole in their spirit and their heart. Take them aside when no one else is around. And that's when people open up. Not in front of people. Don't call them on the spot. Don't embarrass them in front of their friends or in front of their co-workers or anybody else. You take them aside one-on-one and you have lunch with them. You have dinner with them. You invite them to your house. You invite them to church. You, 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 you become friends with them. Christ in your heart. These people in Antioch, man, these people that they called Christians, they gave them this label because they couldn't figure them out. They were turning this world upside down in the epitome of darkness. They were going around and they were reaching people for God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
They started a fire everywhere that they went. In the midst of darkness, when there's light, people are either drawn to it or they're repelled by it. But for those who are drawn to it, we have an important strategic position and responsibility to share with them that God loves them. They were preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, they were preaching the Lord, not Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus the good teacher, not Jesus the great philosopher, not Jesus the man. They were preaching Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. After his resurrection, Jesus of Nazareth would never again be known as Jesus. He is known always in Scripture as the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that he is the Lord, one and only Lord, is because of his obedience to the point of death on the cross that God highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every person will bow one day and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord to the glory of God. However, for some, it'll be too late. For others, we would have already known. He's the Lord Jesus Christ and there is no other God. They're preaching the Lord Jesus They're telling him of his life and his death and his resurrection. They were dealing with Gentiles. They weren't talking about the scripture or talking about the fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah. You know, those those people didn't understand any of that. They never were familiar with scripture. They weren't familiar with God's promises. They weren't looking for a Messiah or a Savior. All they knew was that there was something wrong in their hearts and that they were wicked before God. And when they were confronted with their wickedness and their sin, then they understood who Jesus Christ of Nazareth is. He's the Son of God, God Himself in human flesh who came to die on the cross for those who would believe in Him. They preached the Lord Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection. And we should do the same today. His perfect sinless life exposes our sinful nature. His death on the cross is a perfect substitute for those who would believe in Him. His resurrection from the dead is that we would understand and believe that He's able to not only conquer death, but then to also give us eternal life. He is alive today. And his return one day to judge sinners is taught very clearly throughout the word of God. The result of this was, man, they turned to the Lord. Anytime and every time that Jesus is proclaimed, people turn to him. How can you not be drawn by such love? As God prepares hearts, many turn to him. The hand of the Lord meant two things. God's power expressed in judgment or God's power expressed in blessing. In this case, it was God's blessing. They turned to the Lord. But I want you to also notice something here. It says, And the hand of the Lord was on them, and a large number who believe turned to the Lord. And I mentioned many times, and I'll continue to drum it in so that it's always remembered, and that is that mankind is in rebellion against God, and we're running from Him. The easiest pursuit in life is the pursuit of God. Because once we stop running and we repent and turn to Him, guess what? He's standing right in our face. The only reason people don't know God is because they have no interest in knowing Him. They're running from Him. But those who seek God, the Bible says, that we'll never be disappointed. Those who are seeking God, God is seeking us. All we've got to do is stop running from Him, turn, repent from sin, and receive the gift that He's offered to us in forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And that's what was happening in Antioch. This heavenly vitality that burned in the midst of this materialistic and immoral uh, city was turned upside down. You know what's amazing is that this is the kind of thing, this, this word that they were given, this term Christian that they were given was given to them because it summed up who they were. In 1640, George Fox and his followers had a similar thing happen to them. It says, when he stood, George Fox stood before a certain Justice Bennett and, quote, bid him to tremble at the word of God. 
in response, the justice called Fox and his followers Quakers. Elton Trueblood comments, one of the best evidences that the image which Fox and his associates conveyed to their contemporaries was a dynamic one is that they were provided by the nickname Quaker. They preached the word of God and they invited those to hear to quake in their boots at the judgment of God. They were called Quakers. The same thing happened to the Methodists who were so named because of their systematic, methodical pursuit of holiness. If that same dynamic was happening in our life and in our community through us, what label would we be given? What label would be given to us? What words do they use now when they see you coming? When God's people live for Christ in such depth and power that those around them have to strive for a new term to describe what they see, that's pretty awesome. And that's what happened in Antioch. We don't understand these people. We've got to come up with a name for them. And they called them Christians. The third reason that these believers were first called Christians at Antioch was that they continually were encouraging persistence. And what I mean by that is if you look at verses 22 through 24, we read that in the news about them, this large number of people who turned and trusted in Christ in Antioch reached the ears of the church, as, as we see here. In Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and, continual, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Think about it, that such a place as Antioch, with all of its perversion and all of its darkness, all of its immorality, all its rebellious nature, was being turned upside down or set on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, news traveled fast. Can you imagine? That'd be like I said, having a revival in Las Vegas. I mean, people would be like, you got, what? Seriously. Or Mardi Gras in New Orleans or Rio. There's a revival that's breaking out there? You're kidding me. We got to check that out. And that's exactly what happened. So they picked Barnabas, who was raised on the island of Cyprus. He was a Hellenist. He was also a Jew. And he probably had personal friends that were there in Antioch telling people of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they picked him. They chose him. He was a generous man. He was a pious man. He was an encourager. He was a reconciler. And the one who brought, he was the one who brought Saul to the church in Jerusalem. And notice this in verse 23. When he came and witnessed the grace of God... He accepted it for what it was. And with a resolute heart, he told them to remain true or steadfast, persistent in their walk with God. To not turn their hearts on him, to meditate on him, to make the Lord Jesus Christ everything in their life. To meditate upon him. So many of us are trying to be Christians and have no relationship with Christ. We're trying to live a good life because people tell us we got to do good things. We got to go to church. We got to read our Bible. We got to give so much money. We got to do good deeds. We got to do stuff. But it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us can boast before God. See, when Barnabas saw that they received the gift of God, the indescribable gift of God, the free gift of God to all who will receive Him, he praised God. And he told them to walk consistently, steadfastly, in a manner worthy of their calling. 
to continue to be obedient, to continue to hold true to your love of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you on the cross. And the question that I ask of myself is, is that true of me? Is that true of you? Do you really love the Lord with all of your heart, a resolute heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength, in every area of life? Does He really come first? Is He preeminent? In your relationships, in your date life, in your financial areas, in your career, in your job, in health issues, in your future plans, in sexual activity, in personal habits, does He really come first in all of those things? Do you cleave to the Lord and includes loving Him, walking in His ways, obeying His word, and serving Him wholeheartedly? After all, Jesus said, no man can have two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. Who's your master? Who do you call Lord? Barnabas saw grace and rejoiced. Then he encouraged God's people. And the reason he was able to do it is he's a good man, full of the Spirit, full of faith. This church in Antioch was a holy but disconcerting presence in the midst of that dark city. It caused those people to quake at the thought of the judgment of God. It shook them to their very soul. And many repented of sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. A great number of people, were told, were brought to the Lord. And lastly... The believers were first called Christians at Antioch for what I call their emptying preeminence. And what that means very simply is this. As you look at Barnabas, and it says that he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. He saw what was going on. He saw what God was doing, and he needed help. It says that he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And the reason that I bring this up is because it tells us a lot about the character and the heart of Barnabas. The word look for, sought after Saul, means that he intensely was trying to find him. And it wasn't easy to find him. They didn't have crisscross directories. They didn't have email. They didn't have, you know, all the things that we have to try to hunt somebody down. He went to where he last heard he was, and then he'd ask people that were there, when was Saul here? How long ago was it? Did he say where he was going? Did he say what he was doing? And he laboriously tried to find him, to bring him back. And the reason that's so important and emptying preeminence means that, you know what, there was some other character of Barnabas, and that was this. Even though Barnabas was older, even though Barnabas was more respected, even though Barnabas had been a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ longer than Saul of Tarsus, he knew that God had called Saul to minister to the Gentiles. And he saw what God was doing, and he said by the Spirit of God's leading that Saul is the guy that needs to be here because these people need to grow in their faith. And he went and hunt him down. He lived a life that was earlier uttered by the statement John the Baptist made when he saw Jesus Christ coming. And he said, he must increase and I must decrease. My time in the spotlight is over. It's time for him to be the one that you follow. Barnabas, hey, you know what? This isn't about me. This is about God's program. This is about God's plan. And I know that God wants Saul to be the person. And he went and he got him. He looked for him. And he brought him to these people. And you know what's a fascinating thing as we look at this? And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And he came about that for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable members, numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. They were people who said, hey, you know what? 
This isn't about me. What you see happening in my life is because Jesus Christ is alive. I take no credit for this whatsoever. It'd be like Orphan Annie bragging about her new house. And all she would do is say, hey, I had nothing to do with any of this. I was a little snot-nosed orphan running around in the streets with no place to eat, no place to live. And this man brought me into his home. And he graciously gave to me that which I did not deserve. So when I take you around and show you the house and show you the pool and show you the yard and show you the kitchen and show you the bedrooms and show you everything, you give him all the praise and glory because I deserve none of it. And that's the same for each and every one of us who have come into a genuine relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about me. It's not about us. Jackie Slater said it best as he concluded his remarks at the NFL Hall of Fame. He says, reporters want to ask me all the time, you know, why, 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 why? Is it your work ethic? Is it your teammates? Is it, you know, is it you had a great running back like Eric Dickerson? You had great offensive linemen. You had a great offensive scheme. You had a good team. You had a great coach, John Robinson, who loved the running game. You had all these things. Is that why you are here today? And say, all those things that you just said are true. I had great teammates. I had a great running back. We had great linemen. We had a great coach. We had a great system. We had all those things. But you know what? A whole bunch of other teams and a whole bunch of other people have all of those things. But when God's hand is upon a person and it's his destiny, then I've got to give all the credit to the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't want to hear it. Nobody wants to hear it. We live in a world where people don't want to hear it. But there is no other answer for God's people than to exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they taught him. The template or model for the church is laid out in verse 26. And they taught them the word of God. We must always be dedicated to the proclaiming of the Word of God. The only way you and I get to know God intimately is as He reveals Himself to us through His Word. We pray all you want, but until your prayer is mixed with a combination of studying the Word of God, you don't know what to pray. I don't know what to pray. But as He reveals Himself to us in His Word, and for a year, they intensely taught them the truth of the Word of God. How committed or dedicated are you to learning the Word of God? Five minutes here, ten minutes there, an hour, maybe a Sunday. I mean, I mean, that's nothing. You spend more time on that and, you know, your hobbies and the pursuit of your hobbies. After all, if you really want to be good at golf, you should take lessons and do videos and buy new equipment and spend time at the range. But if you really want to be close to God, don't you think you should spend some time with Him? You really want to have a dynamic marriage and you really want to have, you know, a, a better, deeper understanding of your spouse. But you spend no time together. You don't communicate. You don't learn about one another. And the same with your children. And the same with your friends. And the same is true of your God. We must be willing to commit time. And they were hungry for the Word of God. They couldn't get enough of it. And that's what they did. And that was what's so incredible about these people who are first called Christians in Antioch. In closing, let me ask you a couple questions. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would you be guilty of embracing all the people of God? Black or white, 
yellow or brown, rich or poor, young or old, male or female? Would you be guilty of the explosive proclamation of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? One of the most disheartening things is for somebody to ever say to you or me, I didn't know you were a Christian. Has anyone ever said that to you? Oh, you're a Christian. I didn't know you were a Christian. Why not? Would you be guilty of encouraging persistence, a wholehearted love of the Lord and obedience to His Word in every area of your life? Would you be guilty of emptying preeminence? It's no longer my will that needs to be done, but yours. You are God. I am not. You exist so that I can serve you. Cosmopolitan, sordid, voluptuous Antioch couldn't fit this new people into any of its categories. So a new name was born. And there was jesting and mocking edge to it. Perhaps even a bit of rage because these people were such a contradiction to what was going on in Antioch. There was no question there was anger because they were raining on their parade. The last thing anybody who is in, deeply involved in sin wants to do is be convicted about their behavior. The new term was a mongrel name, part Greek, part Latin, but it said it all. Christ ends. Followers of Christ. Christ was so much on these believers' lips that they lived so like Christ that no other name would do. Christian is a wonderful name. It's a name of which we should seek to be worthy. Alexander the Great once learned that in his army was a namesake, namesake, another Alexander, who was a notorious coward. It says, Alexander the Great, who conquered the world when he was just 23, called the soldier before him and said, Is it true that your name is Alexander and that you are named after me? And the trembling coward said, Yes, yes, sir, my name is Alexander, and I was named after you. The great general looked at this man and said, Then either be brave or change your name. Thank God that the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't ask us to change our name. But I say the same thing. You either be brave or don't tell anybody that you're a Christian. We don't need any more contradictions. The world is confused enough. Take the sticker off your car if you're not going to live it in your life. Father, we love you, we praise you, we just thank you that you sought us out and that you gave us your only begotten Son. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, may we become men and women who are steadfast and persistent in our love for you, serving you wholeheartedly in every area of life, embracing all believers as fellow heirs of eternal life, laying aside all prejudices that divide us, that we would embrace those whom you have embraced. For who are we to argue with you? 
Lord, may we be guilty of explosive proclamation of the word of God and the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we in all areas of life empty preeminence where people recognize that you come first and that we serve you. God, I just pray for those of us who have uh, become children of God by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. That as the world looks at us and calls us Christian, that it means so much more than it does in our culture today. A follower of Jesus Christ. May we be worthy of wearing such a label and such a tag. God, may we also in every area of life, be used by you as we live this life to draw others to saving knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They were first called Christians in Antioch, a city of immorality that the world had not known till that point, as wicked as many cities in our country and our world today, and a revival broke out because your people were faithful to tell others of your love. Lord, we thank you and we praise you In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.